Hello, and welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Steve Usden, Washington editor of BioCentury. I'm joined today by Simone Fishburn, BioCentury's editor-in-chief, to talk about how biopharmaceutical companies, governments, and nonprofits are collaborating to discover and develop ways to treat and prevent COVID-19. First, I wanted to mention a few highlights from BioCentury's reporting from last week, which seemed like it lasted about a year. The World Health Organization was in the news at the top of the week. President Donald Trump complained that China has too much power over the WHO and then greatly diminished U.S. influence over the organization by freezing U.S. funding. Andrew Witte, the former CEO of GlaxoSmithKline and an expert on pandemic preparedness, took on a temporary role as co-leader of the WHO's COVID-19 vaccine program. WHO is running a master protocol study of potential COVID-19 therapies around the world and plans to launch a trial of vaccines. In other vaccine news, BARDA, the U.S. Biodefense Agency, announced it was investing half a billion dollars to get a vaccine that Moderna is developing across the finish line. Moderna has partnered with NIH on a messenger RNA vaccine. Moderna's is one of at least seven vaccines undergoing phase one testing with dozens more in preclinical development. Details are available at BioCentury's free COVID-19 resource center at biocentury.com backslash coronavirus. Two of the world's largest vaccine manufacturers, Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline, announced a partnership last week. It combines GSK's adjuvant technology, which makes vaccines more potent, with Sanofi's COVID-19 candidate vaccine. Sanofi told BioCentury that if the vaccine's safe and effective, it could make as many as 600 million doses in its U.S. plant and more at a contract manufacturer in Japan. In the U.K., a new task force is trying to speed the development and production of COVID-19 vaccines, and an industry-led group is trying to scale up manufacturing capacity. Gilead's Remdesivir, an antiviral drug candidate, was in the news last week. Two trials in China were suspended because there weren't enough eligible patients. Meanwhile, a randomized controlled trial that includes remdesivir is being conducted by NIH's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. A readout's expected in May. Leaked information from one site in an uncontrolled multi-center trial caused Gilead stock to spike. There was also a flurry of activity last week around antibody testing. Roche and Abbott Labs announced they would soon start shipping millions of serological tests. Broad deployment of serological tests is a critical part of plans for reopening society. Reports that marketed tests are performing poorly are raising questions about FDA's hands-off regulatory strategy. Pressure's mounting for government to increase test validation. That's some of the news from last week, and it doesn't include what's probably the most important story, how biopharma companies are banding together to fight COVID-19. That's what I want to speak with Simone about. Simone, let's start with the R&D group. What is it? Who's in it? And how'd you get the inside story? Well, let me start by saying the UK Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, is credited with having said a week's a long time in politics. A week is certainly no longer what it used to be in the era of coronavirus. So last week was the week when we finally found out what pharma, what biopharmas are doing, and even what NIH is doing. A lot of people have been waiting to see what's going on. Why isn't there some huge grand scale activity? And uh, we're now finding out actually that there is some huge grand scale activity. We've heard about this at BioCentury. We unveiled it last week. 
COVID R&D is the name the industry group has taken. So we now know about three large consortia. COVID R&D is the consortium that is entirely made of industry entities. It contains 15 biopharma groups. There's 14 large farmers and Evotech, one biotech, which is running a lot of assays. Two VCs are in that group. What they're really aiming to do is get together, expedite getting molecules into the clinic, triage ideas, create plans for an ongoing program so that it's not just what can we get in by the summer, but what can innovative ideas bring to the table in the next year, two years, even three years and setting up protocols and master protocols. And this is a really, really important part of this because what they want is for people to be able to generate data so that you can compare one with the other, so that you can know which compound actually works. And this is what we're starting to see as a central theme among these three consortia. So you mentioned the, uh, the R&D consortia. There's two others, right? There's the one that NIH has that's called Active, which also includes um, EMA and BARDA, CDC, some other government agencies, and right, and a bunch of the companies that are also in the R&D, in the R&D group, right? That's right. So what you have now, as I said, there's three consortia. The third one is called COVID-19 Therapeutics Accelerator. We heard about that a couple of weeks ago. That is headed up by Novartis and Gates. So active which is the name given to the NIH, I think it's FNIH actually run consortium, which Francis Collins unveiled last week. Active has an overlap of 11 companies with COVID R&D. There are five companies that overlap with all three consortia. That will be Bristol Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, GlaxoSmithKline, J&J and Novartis. The COVID R&D consortium, which is exclusively industry groups, is, is really headed up by... Andy Plump from Takeda and Rupert Vesey from BMS, but they're really running that in, in a very collaborative way that we've not really seen before. The active consortium by NIH models itself a little bit like the AMP that, consortium that was created a few years ago, which is run by FNIH, and that does involve public-private partnerships. So as you mentioned, FDA and EMA are involved in that, the CDC is involved in that. HHS is involved there, uh, NIH as well. So there is some overlapping membership and there are also some overlapping themes. But I think there is a, a common sense among them that they actually want to avoid duplication. So these organizations are actually talking to each other a fair amount. So one of the things that Francis Collins actually mentioned in a call with reporters last week is the role that BioCentury is playing in the R&D consortium and he said also in active in creating publicly accessible databases of clinical and preclinical uh, drug candidates that could be useful against COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, as you know, Steve, we've been actually covering this disease, let's call it this disease, really since it was in, in Wuhan, China, and watching it as it's gone across the globe. And as that happened, we were starting to follow and track the new therapies being tested for that. For the disease. So as we were generating this list and putting it on our, our website, we were putting things in the public domain, COVID R&D folks came to us and said, 
could they use this? Would we continue to put this in the public domain and serve as a resource that we're obviously delighted to do to really collate this information and act as a, as a public front for it? And we have a tremendous number of people and entities, and we invite more to do that, sending their compounds to us. So it, it turns out to be a fairly comprehensive list. We're obviously checking it daily. We get a number of submissions. We have vaccines. We have therapies. We have them divided by clinical and preclinical. And we're continuing to populate this. And what we're doing is we're adding the relevant pieces of information. So it is helpful for BioCentury to have this input from the community telling us the information that is useful we, we believe that we have a good handle on that. We will be putting mechanisms up there, for example, in the future. We've put the clinical trials, links, and so on. So these are all sortable, they're downloadable, and we're going to be adding to this as we go. And what we're understanding is that these entities, both the COVID R&D one and Active, are using these lists and databases or data sources to be able to find good ideas, triage them, evaluate them, and figure out which are the ones that they would like to put forward into their testing models. So one of the things that Francis Collins said last week, and I thought it was really important, is that one of the criteria that ACTIVE is using, and I assume also the R&D group, for picking which, which compounds to test first is whether there's the ability to scale, scale up manufacturing quickly, because there's no point in testing something, finding out it works, and then not being able to rapidly uh, deploy it. W what are some of the other criteria that are being considered when, when industry and when NIH are thinking about which drugs or potential drugs to, uh, to test in clinical trials? Well, I've been poring over the details that each entity has disclosed of how, they, how they're doing this. And one, one difference appears to be that COVID R&D has a sort of longer time frame, longer vision in its mind. So both they and ACTIVE are, have part of their activities geared at getting things into the clinic as soon as possible. So in addition to the ability to massively scale up compounds, they're primarily looking at repurposed agents. What that means is that they've actually been tested in man for any indication, not necessarily for a, a viral disease as it happens, remdesivir, as you, as you know, was previously tested for, um, for Ebola where it didn't work. But there are a number of agents that have been tested. They might be on the market or they may be in testing. And so these are repurposed agents where you're going to be able to get them in faster because you have a sense of their safety profile in humans. They also have molecules where what they're doing is looking at their in vitro activity, seeing if they actually show any uh, anti-COVID sort of activity against the virus that causes COVID. Those are obviously the top line criteria. As you get more granular, they're going to be ones where they think that there's a, a reasonable mechanism of action. There's a reasonable hypothesis for why this should work. There are different agents that work at different stages of the disease. Early on, you might want something that will boost your immune system to help you fight the disease. And then later on in the disease, we know the immune system kicks in and you get the cytokine storm. That's actually what's responsible for a lot of the very severe effects ultimately leading to death, in fact. And so in those cases, they're looking at things that might suppress the immune system or suppress that cytokine response. So there, 
there's quite a rigorous evaluation system going on that is mixed with practical aspects like the ability to scale up and has it been tested in man before and scientific ones that are obviously more experimental. But I do want to say that for the R&D consortium, that's just the first wave of activities. They want future waves to be able to look at really experimental new ideas that people are coming up with. And these are ones that will be preclinical, might be designed specifically for this virus. They will take longer to get into the clinic. But if there's a second wave or some people are even talking about a third wave, we don't know how long this virus is going to be with us. They believe that these will, will serve uh, in the long term and obviously also potentially help us against future outbreaks. So one of the other things, people are really skeptical of the pharmaceutical industry. There's a lot of, of concern about whether companies are going to, to, to make excessive profits on, on these kinds of drugs. What's your understanding of, I don't know, either the motivations for the companies or certainly their expectations? Are, are the companies that are working together on this, doing this with an expectation that it's going to be something that's going to generate outsized profits? No, I mean, this is really one of the times when I wish the industry would say more and had said more earlier. They're doing all the things people want them to do. They're sharing data. They're sharing data behind the scenes. I'd like to see this be something that goes on afterwards. They are collaborating in ways that they will work with companies without taking their IP. A lot of the IP aspects aren't fully fleshed out in particular, I think, active. The NIH one did not discuss the IP situation. But right now, their emphasis is on working together and getting these molecules into man. We've certainly covered that Gilead is making a large number of doses free. Right now, the COVID R&D consortium has categorically said that market potential will not weigh into their considerations. They're not looking for that. What they're really looking for is getting things into, into humans and tested. Well, thanks, Simone. That's all the time we've got today. Thanks for listening from me, Steve Usden, and from Simone Fishburn. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can keep up with BioCentury's coverage of COVID-19 at biocentury.com backslash coronavirus.